is where we're moving through the minor prophets in this morning. We've come to the book of Obadiah. So go to Matthew, hang a left. Start thumbing through and you'll find it. Hosea, Joel, Amos, three books we've covered so far, and then Obadiah. Please be praying for us. We're going to Israel. Uh, We leave tonight and we'll be gone for a little while. So keep us in your prayers. We're excited about that trip. We're going to be able to uh, walk the places Jesus walked and see the sights and smell the smells and hear the sounds. And so please keep us in in your prayers that uh, the Lord would bless us and uh, encourage us as as we go. Well, we're in the book of Obadiah. So God, please, again, speak to us by your spirit, through your word, in Jesus' name, amen. Family feuds. History is full of family feuds. From European kings to oriental emperors, families have squared off with families, have fought each other for generations. Often they're called vendettas. That's an Italian word that means blood feud. If you've read Shakespeare's classic, Romeo and Juliet, you know about the fictional feud between the Montagues and the Capulets. America folklore has made famous the Appalachian border war between two families, the Hatfields of West Virginia and the McCoys of Kentucky. In fact, for the last 30 years, families have squared off every night on the TV show, The Family Feud. The American version is in its sixth edition. Well, the book of Obadiah is also about a long-running family feud. Genesis 25 recounts a feud between two brothers. The younger Jacob extorted Esau's birthright. Then he deceived his dad to make it stand. Older brother Esau was a manly man. Kid brother Jacob, he was a mama's boy. Esau had been hunting all morning. He comes home hungry. No, no, he's famished. Jacob has a stew cooking on the fire. Jake should have offered his brother the chili for free, but he didn't. If Esau had valued spiritual and future blessings as much as he did a full belly, he would have never given up his birthright for that chili, but he did. Perhaps Esau thought that his kid brother wouldn't take him seriously, that he could bully little Jacob, that he could eat the stew and keep the birthright. Esau never imagined that Jacob had the chutzpah to impersonate him and to deceive his dad. Esau had Jacob pegged wrong, the kid velcroed hair to his arms and to his legs. He pretended to be the older, more mature, hairier Esau. Father Jacob bit, and he blessed the younger son over his older sibling. And even when Jacob realized the ruse, he refused to reverse the blessing. Jacob saw the hand of God at work in the outcome. Well, in this family feud, both brothers were at fault. Jacob deceived. Esau was carnal and short-sighted. Later, Jacob admitted his error, but Esau never did. Esau was a proud man. He became bitter, very bitter. 
Hebrews 12, verse 17 says, Bitterness took such a hold on Esau's heart that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. You see, Esau was sorry for his loss, but he was too bitter over his brother's double cross to admit his own fault in the matter. Esau never found repentance because he could never shake his resentment. And here was the tragedy. The feud didn't end with the two brothers. It continued. Among the descendants, down through the centuries, the Edomites, or the offspring of Esau, and the children of Jacob, or the Israelites, they fought and they feuded for centuries. This family feud became a border war, a blood feud, a vendetta that carried on for thousands of years. Obadiah was the prophet that God sent to confront the nation Edom. God was the person who could settle this feud and settle it, he would. But first he sends Obadiah to run Edom through the spiritual CAT scan, to x-ray their condition. And in a short, succinct message, Obadiah reveals the underlying sin of Edom and the harmful behavior that it produced. God will conclude this feud. He is going to judge the offspring of Esau. Here's a great example of why we call these last 12 books of the Old Testament the minor prophets. Obadiah is minor only in the sense of its length. It's just 21 verses, the shortest book in the Old Testament, and yet it carries a strategic message. Minor is the label that denotes size, not significance. Each of the major prophets averages 46 chapters. The minor prophets average just six. Yet Amos and Obadiah and Nahum are just as inspired by God, just as vital to us as Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. As it's been often said, the minor prophets pack a major message. Well, notice the book begins in verse 1. The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. And the prophet begins with a startling report. God is rallying the armies of the world to rise up and fight against Edom. Apparently, God had a bone to pick with the Edomites. And Obadiah cuts right to the chase, verse 2. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be greatly despised. You see, Edom had gotten a fathead. I'm not talking about those extra large posters and all that you put on the wall. Not those kind of fatheads. No, I'm talking about the big head. Pride and arrogance had filled their hearts. Edom acted larger than life, but God was about to shrink him small. Hey, let me introduce you to the neighborhood in Obadiah's day. The Philistines, they were over on the west side of Judah. They worshipped Dagon, the fish god. Half man, half fish. The northern, it was kind of a fishy religion. The northern Canaanites, they bowed to, bowed to Baal, the bull. And he was just that, a lot of bull. Ammon was to the east. He sacrificed children to Molech. And then Moab, he worshipped a false god named Chemosh. In other words, everybody had their idol except 
for two nations, the descendants of Jacob and the descendants of Esau. You see, all the other nations in the neighborhood worship a false god. Jacob, the nation Israel, worshiped Jehovah, the one true God. But Edom worshiped no god at all. They were the unbelievers, the atheists. Rather than trust in a god, they relied on themselves. Instead of a deity, they were do-it-yourselfers. The Edomites wanted to be their own god. In some ways, the Edomites are like modern-day Americans. They're guilty of idolizing their own initiative and ingenuity and technology. They were the can-do people. They were industrious and innovative. You see, the Edomites, they carved their cities out of the rocks and cliffs around the Dead Sea. Edom figured that they could defend themselves, that God was irrelevant Just like their forefather Esau, who saw more nutrition in a bowl of stew than in God's blessing, the Edomites failed to recognize their need for the power and the presence of God. In Obadiah's day, Edom had put their trust in their fortresses and in their fortifications. They didn't even recognize their need for God. Obadiah says to Edom in verses 3 and 4, The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who dwell in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high. You who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you ascend as high as the eagle, and though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, says the Lord. Edom thought he was high and mighty, but God tells him, you're going down. Edom saw himself as a soaring eagle. God saw him as a dying duck. You see, Edom acted as if he were his own God. He had grown cocky and independent and arrogant. Edom was like the guy who called dollar prayer just to check his messages. And God was about to whittle Edom down to size. Reminds me of the conversation one night. In the insane asylum, one of the patients shouted out, I am Napoleon Bonaparte. The attendant asked, well, how do you know you're Napoleon? The guy responded, God told me. Suddenly, another voice was heard down the hall. I did not. (laughs) You know, the Bible tells us that any person who acts like he's his own God, he's crazy. He belongs in an insane asylum. Psalm 14, verse 1 declares, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Independence from God, self-sufficiency is sure insanity. You know, the notion that I can fend for myself is an illusion. There's no such thing as a self-made man or a self-made woman. We stand on the shoulders of those who've gone before us. We are what we are by the grace of God. I don't care who you are or where you've been or what you've done. You and I need God for the air we breathe and for our next breath. If you haven't noticed, we live in a world of amazing order and symmetry. Our planet is perfectly positioned to sustain and support life. How did this happen? Look at the human body. It's a masterpiece of engineering. How did that happen? Everywhere you look in nature, you see the evidence of design. 
It makes no sense whatsoever to chalk up our existence to chance occurrences of random events. In a world of intricate design, there has to be a designer. Here's a great little cartoon. Two agnostic fleas are standing on the back of a canine. One asks the other, you mean you actually believe in dog? Hey, the flea on the back of a dog has a very narrow, limited perspective. He can't even see the obvious that he's standing on a dog. This was Edom's problem. He was flea-minded. Listen to the little jingle. Earth houses atheists many. Hell is not occupied by any. In the end, all men admit the obvious. That they really do need God. And this is the message that Obadiah was given to wake up the Edomites. You see, the territory of Edom was a swath of land southeast of the Dead Sea. It was an area 30 miles long, I'm sorry, 30 miles wide by 100 miles long. The people of Esau had made their homes in the cliffs and rocks of the highlands there in the area. Edom's capital city was Petra perched 5,000 feet above the Dead Sea. If you saw the movie Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, you've seen the city of Petra. In the movie, the rock facade of the temple there at Petra was used as the entrance to the cave that supposedly contained the Holy Grail. To invade Petra, an army had to pass through a long, deep gorge. The path was just 15 feet wide, hundreds of feet high, over a mile long. Most chariots were too broad to navigate the narrowness. The city's entrance was so constricted that invading soldiers had to align themselves single file. And it was easy for the Edomites to pick them off and defend their city. It was said that just as few as a dozen Edomites could defend Petra. Petra was considered impregnable to attack. Edom's boast reminds me of Muhammad Ali in his boxing heyday. Once he boarded a plane, and he was asked by the flight attendant to buckle his seatbelt. Ali said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. The stewardess looked at him and said, Superman don't need no airplane. (laughs) And a humbler Ali buckled his seatbelt. You see, Edom thought he was Superman. Obadiah says, God's going to prove you're super chicken. In verse 5, Obadiah says that when thieves ransack a house, they at least leave behind the dog in your junk. They leave something behind. Grape gatherers don't pick the vines completely bare. They leave a few gleanings for the poor and for the wild foxes. And yet the nations who are going to invade Edom will take everything. Edom will be cut off. Their hidden treasures will be ripped off. Verse 7 describes how the Edomites will be betrayed by their so-called allies. And here's why. Here's God's beef with Edom. Just as Edom was betrayed by his buddies, Israel had been betrayed by his brother Esau. Verse 10 tells us, For violence against your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. You see, Esau never got over his bitterness toward Jacob. Even his descendants perpetuated the hatred. Edom was a persistent stumbling block to Israel. They were a constant rock in Israel's shoe. 
In fact, one commentator said of Edom's attitude toward his neighbors, Judah and Israel, he says, the only thing about Edom that bordered on religious fervor was their concentrated, persistent, bitter hatred against the Hebrews. When Israel came out of Egypt and headed for the promised land, it was Edom who refused to allow Moses to pass through their borders. Throughout their history, Edom was Israel's arch enemy. King Saul and David and Jehoshaphat and Jehoram and Amaziah and Ahaz and Zedekiah all fought against Esau. The conflict with Edom was constant. It was always there under the surface. This was a long-running family feud. In fact, it even spills over into Christmas. Today, of course, is the Sunday after Thanksgiving, the traditional start-up to the Christmas season. By the way, how many of you endured the shopping wars this past Friday? Anybody? Oh, you're brave souls. Well, the conflict that Obadiah addresses is actually in the Christmas story. You see, the first Christmas was a feud between two kings. The king of Israel, Jesus, our Messiah, was born in Bethlehem, but another king tried to kill him the moment he was born, King Herod. And who was this Herod? He claimed to be a Jew, but he was actually a Jewish convert. His birth certificate read, Edomite. King Herod was part of Esau's bitter bloodline. The family feud of Obadiah actually is the backdrop of the first Christmas. And yet in verse 11, Obadiah refers to another episode in this family feud. He says, in the day that you stood on the other side, in the day that strangers carried captive his forces, when foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, even you were as one of them. Though Obadiah doesn't provide us a historical context, he certainly has a particular incident in mind. There are different possibilities, but I lean toward Babylon's invasion of Judah in 586 B.C. Babylon conquered Jerusalem, and guess what? Edom rejoiced. Can you believe it? His brother is being slaughtered in Edom parties. Psalm 137 verse 7 records Edom's reaction. Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom the day of Jerusalem, who said, rise it, rise it to its very foundation. The Edomites became Babylonian cheerleaders. The walls of Jerusalem fell. The temple was burned. Israel was made slaves. And yet Edom sat on the sidelines and egged them on, pushed them on, cheered on the Babylonians. They cried out for more carnage against Jerusalem. Run up the score, Babylon. Pour it on Jacob. This was their attitude. There's a verse in the Apocrypha. First Esdras, chapter 4, verse 45. The Apocrypha is not inspired scripture, but it is some interesting history. And in First Esdra, we flash forward to the fall, or we flash forward to after the fall of Jerusalem. The Jews are about to end their captivity in Babylon. And a Jew named Zerubbabel, he reminds the king of Persia, listen to this, he says, you also vowed to build the temple which the Edomites burned when Judea was laid waste by the Chaldeans. Notice, Edom helped Babylon destroy God's temple. They toppled the temple. That shows you the depth of Edom's bitterness. 
In verse 12, Obadiah peppers the Edomites with a series of should nots. He says, but you should not have gazed on the day of your brother in the, in the day of his captivity. Nor should you have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction. Nor should you have spoken proudly in the day of distress. You should not have entered the gate of my people, nor laid hands on their substance. The Edomites even patrolled the caravan route leading south out of Jerusalem to Egypt. They arrested the Jews who were trying to escape. You see, when Judah was down, his own brother Edom, boom, kicked him right in the ribs. Edom's sin was rubbing it in. They took pleasure in their brother's demise. They enjoyed seeing the Jews squirm and sweat and suffer. Edom did nothing to help but applauded as the Jews were led away into chains. Oh, last night I had a phone call from a well-meaning bulldog fan. He called me up. He said he'd been picked on all week by these overconfident techies. And he was licking his bulldog chops. He said, Sandy, you've got to give it to them in the morning. You've got you to give it to them in the morning. They deserve it. And I had to tell him, I can't. Have you read my text? I can't. Obadiah says, beware of the sin of rubbing it in. God warned the haughty Edomites in verse 12 not to speak proudly in the day of distress. And certainly today is a tough day if you're a yellow jacket. Did you know that one of, your own pa- one of our own pastors tried to call in sick this morning? Did you know that? It's a tough day to be a yellow jacket. And I just want to say here at Calvary Chapel, we're going to show you guys a little mercy. It's a day of healing for all yellow jackets. I, I once had a supervisor named Ralph. We worked together at, a, at the DuPont Distribution Center. And one Friday afternoon while we were locking up and heading home, I found a hobo. He was a bum, but he'd come in on the rail car. I guess that makes him a hobo. And he was lying in a drunken stupor on the dock right outside the warehouse. According to company policy, my supervisor, Ralph, should have run him off the property. But Ralph was a wise man. He was a compassionate man. He was a Christian. And instead, Ralph and I, we made the hobo a bed of of foam packing material. We got some of the packing material. We made him a little bed. Then I went into the break room and I bought him a pack of crackers and a soft drink. And I laid them there by the foam mat so that he would have something to eat when he woke up. And I'll never forget what Ralph told me just before we left. He said, Sandy, never kick a man when he's down. You never know when you might be that man. I'll never forget that. Edom should have had mercy on his fallen brother. Instead, the nation tried to pour salt in the wound. They kicked Judah while they were down. Seven times in these three verses, verses 12 through 14, God says to Edom, you should not have. God was angry at Edom and would bring down judgment. Notice verse 15. For the day of the Lord upon all the nations is near. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your reprisal shall return upon your own head. Here's God's message to Edom. What goes around comes around. 
since Edom kicked Israel, Edom is going to get the boot. And history tells us that that's exactly what happened. The Babylonians eventually turned on their allies, the Edomites. 200 years later, around 330 B.C., between the Old Testament and the New Testament, Edom was conquered by the Greek armies of a famous general, Alexander the Great. Eventually, the Jews would gain their independence from the Greeks, and that's when Israel and their Maccabean kings conquered and scattered the Edomites to the point where by the 3rd century A.D., Edom was spoken of as a people group who no longer existed. In other words, the mighty had fallen. From the time Edom kicked a downtrodden Israel onward, they became a nation small and despised, just as Obadiah had predicted. Be careful when you get the big head. But Obadiah's prophecy isn't over. What about the target of Esau's hatred and resentment? Israel was the victim. And God promised to bless and deliver the Hebrews. Edom's hidden riches were ripped off. But Israel's treasure was to be recovered and restored. I love verse 17. He says, On Mount Zion there shall be deliverance and there shall be holiness. The house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. To me, verse 17 here is one of the most provocative verses in all of the Bible. What does God mean by possessing your possessions? If something is your possession, don't you already possess it? Not necessarily. There's an old story. William Randolph Hearst was a wealthy tycoon. He made his money in the newspaper business. And he also was an avid art collector. A couple of years ago, Kathy and I visited his castle and we saw some of his collection. One day, Hearst was thumbing through a magazine, and he saw a beautiful painting. He called in an assistant, and he sent him on a mission to purchase this masterpiece. After weeks of combing galleries all over the world, the assistant returned and reported the results of his failed search. Hearst was angry. He wouldn't take no for an answer. He sent him out again and told him not to return without the coveted edition. Finally, the painting was located in one of Hearst's own warehouses. Mr. Hearst had owned the painting the whole time, but he had failed to possess his possession. And there are Christians who are in the same boat. My friend, all that you need, Jesus has already provided. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 tells us that by his death, through his death, Jesus purchased for us all spiritual blessings. Sitting in God's warehouse today is unlimited power, an unquenchable love, an inexpressible joy, an unexplainable peace, and heavenly wisdom. And it's all for you. Your name is on exactly what you need. It was purchased for you and for now. You need to grab it. You need to now snatch it off the shelf. You need to possess your possessions. And faith is the tentacle. Faith is the tentacle. Faith is the suction cup that can reach up and grab hold of spiritual treasures and take hold of them. You see, it's faith that makes the spiritual tangible and makes the heavenly touchable. 
and makes the eternal timely. It's faith. Hey, don't you be content to come to church and sing about and read about and hear about and talk about the advantages of the Christian life. If you believe it's true, then possess your possessions. Rise up in faith and seize what God has for you. Treat the fruits and gifts and graces of the Holy Spirit as your own personal possessions. That's how God means for you to treat them. Jesus purchased them for you. Why are you allowing the skepticism of other people and your own feelings of unworthiness and demonic doubts? Why are you allowing those things to rob you of enjoying what has been blood-bought for you is in your name? Possess your possessions. You see, the rest of Obadiah describes how Judah will burn brightly while Edom will die out. Verse 21 is probably prophetic of the last days on planet earth. Judges will come to execute a final punishment on Edom. It's interesting, Isaiah 16 is, an, is a prophecy concerning Petra. Outcasts from Judah will take refuge in the rock city just prior to Messiah's coming. Ironically, in God's final judgment on planet earth, the cliffs and caves around Edom, those that Edom trusted to save them but did not, Those will be used by Edom's rivals, Judah, as a place for safety. In the end, Edom will be no more, but Israel will govern God's land. I want you to listen to the last line of Obadiah. It's an important message. And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. In the end, who wins this family feud? Now, you might assume that Israel did, and in a sense that's correct. But Obadiah clarifies, the kingdom shall be the Lord's. You see, you got to understand, it's God who wins every battle. And since Israel lined up on his side, they shared his reward. Edom learned the hard way what's true in all feuds. Neither you nor I are on the winning side. Victory belongs to the Lord. It always does. So the question becomes, not, is God on my side, but always am I? On God's side. When I think of this long-running feud from Jacob to Jesus, from Esau to Herod, it's amazing. What starts out as a fuss between two brothers over a bowl of stew boils over some 2,000 years later in the slaughter of all the male babies in Bethlehem. Wow, some feuds intensify over time. You know, they say the feud between the Hatfield and the McCoys started out when McCoy's hog wandered onto Hatfield land. They both disagreed over the ownership of the hog. Hatfield claimed it was his. McCoy said, no, it was his pig. The whole family conflict started to escalate. Thirteen years and twelve killings later, both families called a ceasefire. Here's my point. Sadly, family feuds tend to spill over. They compound. They mushroom. Perhaps you have been involved in a family feud. Perhaps you have been feuding with a brother or a sister or a parent or a child. In recent days, it's escalated. It could be hostility between you and your spouse. Unity and harmony has degenerated into rivalry. 
Maybe you're in a border war with a neighbor or a co-worker. You know, even churches aren't immune from vendettas and blood feuds. People get so upset with people that they break community and they go across the street to start the second Baptist church. Even Christians can stop fellowshipping and start feuding. In all relationships, a simmering hostility can boil over. And here's the thought I want to leave you with this morning. I think it's the big idea here in Obadiah. We will annoy each other, that's for sure. We will have our differences. We will be inconsiderate at times. We will endure misunderstandings and engage in squabbles and even slight one another. But simple stuff, like a bowl of chili, escalates into a major breach in hostility for one reason. You end up in a family feud for one reason, and it's called pride. Pride divides. Pride causes small fissures to become gaping chasms. Obadiah promises Edom, if he insists on thinking that he's big stuff, God will make him small, and the same applies to you. Oh, he'll be big all right. He'll be a big whoop-de-doo. He'll be despised, not esteemed, and God will do the same to you and me. James 4 verse 6 tells us God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. It's time for us to humble ourselves, to stop focusing on how you've been wronged and realize that you've done wrong. That's what Esau never did. Deal with your own sin. God will right the wrongs that need to be righted if you get your own heart right. Obadiah promises Edom that their pride will bring them down. Please beware of pride. Today, is there someone here who needs to swallow their pride? Is there a friend or family member or a co-worker to whom you should apologize and make amends? Always remember, you never get heartburn eating humble pie. Don't ever forget what comes after pride. The Bible's clear. A fall comes after pride. You see, pride sets you up for a humble tumble. Ever taken a humble tumble? Proverbs 16 verse 18 says it best. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Just ask Edom. I like this quote. A man who acts too big for his britches will be exposed in the end. Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 23, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. In 1971, the fight of the century took place in New York's Madison Square Garden. Muhammad Ali squared off against the champ, smoking Joe Frazier. Before the fight, Ali boasted, there's not a man alive who can whoop me. I'm too smart. I'm too pretty. I'm the greatest. I'm the king. I should be a postage stamp. That's the only way I can get licked. But guess what happened that night? Ali got licked. Frazier knocked him down. He defended his title. 
1 Corinthians 10 verse 12 always rings true. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Here's the problem with pride. Pride puts you first. First in your family, first at work, first at church, first in life, first with your friends, first before God. And when you put anything before God, that's called worship. And this is the reason God hates pride. It's because He wants your worship. It's time for some of us to admit our pride and to bow our knee to God. Acknowledge your neediness. Call on Jesus. By faith, possess your possessions. Pride is the great divider. Trust Jesus. And you can end the feud between you and your brother. You can end the feud between you and your God. Father, we thank you for your words today. And pray, Lord, for